Exodus chapter 40, verse 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, 2. On the first day of the first month shalt thou rear up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. The first holiday in the year is Passover. And on Passover, they sacrifice the Passover lamb. And it's also one of the major holidays where all the men in Israel are required to appear before the Lord at the tabernacle. It just happens to be the beginning of the year when all of the things for the tabernacle have been finished. They've all been made. And so now God is telling them to set up the tabernacle in the same month that they're supposed to have Passover. 3. And thou shalt put therein the ark of the testimony, and thou shalt screen the ark with a veil. The veil is between the ark of the testimony and the perfume table inside the tabernacle. 4. And thou shalt bring in the table, and set in order the bread that is upon it, and thou shalt bring in the candlestick, and light the lamps thereof. The candlestick is going to go on the left side, and in he's to light all seven lights with the oil in the wicks in each lamp, and then on the right is going to be the showbread table. 5. And thou shalt set the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony. That's where what I'm calling the perfume table. It's fashioned after the altar that's in the outer courtyard where the animals get sacrificed. It has the same square design with the horns, four horns, one horn on each corner. And that is where the incense burns and put the screen of the door to the tabernacle. Now God is saying, now put the screen on the front door of the tabernacle. There's a veil inside the tabernacle that separates the Ark of the Testimony from the perfume table. Then there's a screen that leads to the outside of the tabernacle. And then there's a front door entrance that leads into the courtyard. And all of these screens, veils, entrances, they all have the same design on them with the cherubim. 6. And thou shalt set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. The altar where the animals get sacrificed is in front of the door of the tabernacle. 7. And thou shalt set the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar, and shalt put water therein. The laver is the bath where the priests are required to wash their hands and feet, just like Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. I guess their hands were already clean because they were getting ready for dinner, so they had probably already washed their hands. But Jesus himself washed their feet. He told Peter, if your feet are clean, all of you is clean. The priests are supposed to wash their hands and feet to get the filth of the world off of themselves. And it, it symbolizes sanctification because sanctification is when you separate yourself from the world. You don't watch the rated R movies. You don't go, you're separate from the world. When they're washing their hands and their feet, washing your hands means washing the corruption out of your life. That symbolizes stop sinning because we usually sin with our hands. Often the things we do that are wrong involve our hands. And washing your feet means you're not going where the world goes. You're not going to be a part of what the world does. You're not going to follow the world. You're going to follow Jesus because our feet get covered with dust when we walk, especially in those times when they had sandals and they were walking in the desert. Washing the feet symbolizes no longer of the world. Now there's a Bible verse that says how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the word of the Lord. Our feet become beautiful when we share the gospel and our testimony with other people, when we tell other people about Jesus. But our feet are filthy when we're following in the things of the world. Also remember Jesus told his disciples, if you go to a town and you preach the good news and they don't hear you, then you have to shake the dust off of your feet before you leave that town or as you're leaving that town. And that will be a testimony against that town on Judgment Day. 
by shaking the dust off their feet, it means we have no part in these people because they won't hear the gospel. They won't believe on Jesus Christ and repent. So we're not a part of them. And that's why they were told to shake the dust off their feet. Eight, and thou shalt set up the court roundabout and hang up the screen of the gate of the court. He's saying raise the walls of the courtyard. And those are the acacia wood golden inlaid walls. Nine, and thou shalt take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is therein and shalt hollow it and all the furniture thereof and it shall be holy. The anointing oil has the perfume recipe that includes myrrh, cinnamon, calamus, cassia, and olive oil. And it smelled incredibly beautiful. The priest is supposed to put the oil on all of the furnishings and anoint. They're made holy by the oil. The oil represents the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is literally God's Spirit. You and I also have spirits, but our spirits aren't holy. But God's Spirit is holy, and that's why He is called the Holy Spirit. 10. And thou shalt anoint the altar of burnt offering, and all its vessels, and sanctify the altar, and the altar shall be most holy. The altar also gets anointed with oil, and so do all the vessels. The vessels would be the basins for catching the blood from the animal, and the shovels, and the picks, and all the prongs that you heave the animal meat up on the altar with, and all of that stuff. 11. And thou shalt anoint the laver in its base and sanctify it. And that's the place where the priests wash their hands and feet. 12. And thou shalt bring Aaron and his sons unto the door of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water. And I think it's interesting that God doesn't say, tell them to wash. He says, you wash them. Moses, who is also a Levite, is commanded to wash Aaron and his sons. Obviously, he's going to have them dip fully in water, but he'll be their assistant with giving them a towel and helping them get their old clothes off and put on the priestly garments. Whenever the priest goes to serve, he takes off his civilian clothes. Then he washes himself and then he puts on the holy garments. So they need assistance with all of this. And it's kind of like a king getting dressed who needs assistance. These priests are literally putting on Jesus Christ because all of their apparel represents some aspect of the holiness of God and the sacrifice of Jesus. They're putting on Christ. It's a very complex outfit, and so they need assistance. Everything in the outfit represents something. 13. And thou shalt put upon Aaron the holy garments, and thou shalt anoint him and sanctify him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. So at that point, once Aaron is sanctified, anointed with holy oil, he's set apart. He cannot do anything except the service to the Lord that the priest is appointed to do. He can't run home and watch TV. He can't sit down and read a book. He can't water the plants in his garden. Once he's anointed and sanctified, he is only for the purposes of God. And he stays in the sanctuary area, in the tabernacle, until he's completed all of his duties. And then, after he takes the priestly garments off and puts on his civilian clothes, then he can go home and do what he wants to do. Sanctification means you're only for the Lord's purpose. And we need to understand that because the Bible commands us to be sanctified. So that means that we're not one foot in and one foot out. We're all the way in with Jesus. Everything we do has to be about him. And I preach this to myself because I'm tempted on a daily basis to do other things. You know what I mean? And we all are. So we need to keep remembering to be sanctified. 14. And thou shalt bring his sons and put tunics upon them. Now the tunics are what I called the Jesus robe, which is the long white linen garment. 
that has the beautiful raised checker design. 15. And thou shalt anoint them as thou didst anoint their father, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office, and their anointing shall be to them for an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Not only are these four sons going to be priests, but their sons and their sons and their sons and their sons forever will be considered priests. 16. Thus did Moses, according to all that the Lord commanded him, so did he. Moses is the baby brother of Aaron. Aaron is the oldest brother, so God has picked the oldest brother to be the high priest, and his particular sons to be the the generations of the high priests. Moses is also a Levite, but God has appointed him to be the leader of Israel, and being the leader of Israel is a full-time job, and being high priest is a full-time job. So God wants one man to do one job and the other man to do the other. 17. And it came to pass in the first month in the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was reared up. The tabernacle is raised on the very first day of the month of Abib, on the very second year after they left Egypt. All this other stuff that we read about, where God gave Moses the law and Horeb and the golden calf and everything else and all the makings of the tabernacle. So it must have took a number of months for them to make everything for the tabernacle because all of this stuff added up to two years. 18. And Moses reared up the tabernacle and laid its sockets and set up the boards thereof and put in the bars thereof and reared up its bars. The paneling stands upright in the silver sockets for the tabernacle and I think it's brass sockets for the courtyard. Then there are horizontal bars that are connected by rings in the vertical wall panelings. And then you put the horizontal bars in and that holds all the walls together. And then the drapery that goes over it is held together with clasps. And Moses reared up its pillars. 19. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent upon it as the Lord commanded Moses. It's a three-layer covering. It has the black goat's hair covering which is a cloth made of goat's hair. And then it also has the seal skin and ram skins colored red. 20. And he took and put the testimony into the ark. And that means the written law that was on the tablets. He placed it inside the ark of the covenant and set the staves on the ark. So the poles that you can carry the ark by and put the ark cover above upon the ark. Now the cover is the mercy seat that's solid gold, and that's at the top of the ark. The rest of the ark is acacia wood inlaid with gold, and the mercy seat is where the precious blood of the sacrifice goes. And in the New Testament, we'll learn that the blood of Jesus actually goes on the mercy seat. 21. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord commanded Moses. 22. And he put the table in the tent of meeting upon the side of the tabernacle northward without the veil. Now that's the showbread table. The tabernacle is facing east, so when you walk into it, you're facing west. And on your right, which is the north, is the showbread table. On your left, which is the south, is the candlestick. And the showbread table has the 12 loaves of unleavened bread. Each loaf represents one of the tribes of Israel. There's six loaves on one plate and six loaves on another plate. 23. And he set a row of bread in order upon it before the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. 24. And he put the candlestick in the tent of meeting over against the table on the side of the tabernacle southward. The candlestick and the showbread table are opposite each other. They're directly across from each other. The candlestick represents the seven spirits of God that are before his throne, which are the seven character traits of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has seven character traits, and the Holy Spirit is God's spirit, which means God 
in his spirit, he has seven character traits, which include wisdom, knowledge, mercy, and some other stuff. I need to get that whole list for you, but I don't have it yet. 25, and he lighted the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. 26, and he put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the Lord. 27, and he burnt thereupon incense of sweet spices as the Lord commanded Moses. That's what I'm calling the perfume table. That's where the incense gets burnt and the perfume. Let's go over what's in the incense because the incense recipe and the perfume recipe are slightly different. The incense recipe has stacti, which is a product of myrrh, and myrrh represents Jesus being crucified. It also has anicha, which means godly authority, and it has galbanum, which means endurance or perseverance, and it has frankincense, which is purity, which represents the priesthood. And the recipe for the perfume was myrrh, which represents Jesus on the cross, cinnamon, which represents holiness, calamus, which represents redemption because Jesus purchased our lives with his blood, cassia, which represents humility because Jesus left the throne of the Godhead in heaven to come to earth and live humbly among us and then allow us to put him on the cross. And that's, that's humility that no one else has ever had, and olive oil, which represents peace and the Holy Spirit. And peace in the Bible means one of two things. It means no war, but in this case, it means that our sins are not held against us. Because Jesus paid the price for our sins, we have peace with the Father, meaning that he doesn't hold our sin against us once we repent. 29. And the altar of burnt offering he set at the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered upon it the burnt offering and the meal offering, as the Lord commanded Moses. The burnt offering is an animal sacrifice. The meal offering, that's a grain sacrifice. 30. And he set the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water therein wherewith to wash. 31. That Moses and Aaron and his sons might wash their hands and their feet thereat. Moses has to wash up too, and that makes sense. If he's going to help them put on the holy garments, why would he do that if his feet and hands are dirty? And he also has to be sanctified to assist them. 32. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they came near unto the altar, they should wash, as the Lord commanded Moses. Every time they approach God, and every time they make a sacrifice, they have to wash first. 33. And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the screen of the gate of the court, so Moses finished the work. Now the outer courtyard wall has been raised up. 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. Now the cloud has always been there for all these two years. They've been following the cloud. But now the cloud is covering. It's like hovering over the tabernacle itself. It's like going low and hovering. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. They still can't see him, but there must have been a great light and a great presence of the Lord there. And it filled the whole tabernacle where the ark is. 35. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of meeting, because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now today, there are a lot of preachers who talk about the Shekinah glory and the glory cloud, and they say that it's coming into their church. It is noteworthy to point out. I'm not saying that God isn't with those people, because I think he is, but I'm not so sure that it's the glory cloud. It's worth pointing out that when the glory cloud hovered over the tabernacle, the presence of the Lord was so strong and so intense and so pure and holy that Moses could not enter the tabernacle. And Moses was like the holiest person on the planet at that time. 
he was the one who went and spoke with God on the mountain, and he himself turned bright light because of it. If the holiest person on the planet couldn't approach God, couldn't approach this cloud, it seems kind of weird that people today would say that they're walking and dancing in the cloud and take it with a grain of salt. Also, Shekinah, the word Shekinah is, that word is not from the Bible, so it's not accurate to call the glory, the cloud of glory, Shekinah. Shekinah is a word that comes from Jewish mysticism and Jewish witchcraft which is called Kabbalah. Anything related to Kabbalah, I urge you to stay clear away from. A lot of Jewish products like, you know, decorations and jewelry actually has Kabbalah symbols on it. So be really careful if you're buying a Jewish product. I always look at things and I look at the symbols and if it has demonic symbology, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And up to half of all Jewish products have Kabbalah symbols on them. Shekinah is a Kabbalah terminology, and I don't use it, and it's not what this verse is talking about. 36. And whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward throughout all their journeys. When the cloud hovered over the tabernacle, they stayed put, they camped, and they stayed there for weeks, whatever long that the Lord wanted them to stay. But when the cloud raised and became like a pillar, then they knew that God was telling them to move, so they would pack up camp and start marching and following the towering cloud. 37. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. The cloud is hovering low over the tabernacle, they camp. If the cloud raises up like a pillar, then they pack up camp and they start walking and following it. 38. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and there was fire therein by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Nighttime it's fire, and in the morning it's day, and that way everybody can see it. And this has to be huge. It has to be going up at least a quarter of a mile, minimum. It could have been going up into the sky half a mile, because millions of people have to see it, which means for at least a couple, two, three miles back, all these people have to be able to see this thing at once. When God tells you to stay put, stay put. When God tells you to move, move. A lot of people want to always be on the move, but sometimes God tells us to stop and listen to him and rest. And sometimes he tests our faith when he tells us to stop. So we need to learn when to stop too. We need to hear his voice. And that goes for me as well. And also I wanted to point out another thing. You notice that the children of Israel had sinned a whole lot. They were like nothing but griping, nothing but complaining. Then they sacrificed to the golden calf that they had made and totally blasphemed God in that. So they were great sinners and God almost killed all of them because they sinned so greatly against him. But as soon as he told them to build the tabernacle, they were gung-ho. They were like all in, 100%. No complaining happened. No one said, oh, I don't want to do this. Nobody said that. Everybody was like gung-ho. They gave so many things for the temple that the priests had to tell them to stop because they're like, we have enough. Stop, you guys. We have more than enough material. When the crafters made everything, they crafted it so perfectly that when Moses saw it, he approved of everything on the first trial. He didn't say, oh, this isn't right. That isn't right. You didn't follow God's orders. Go back and do it again. He approved it on the very first time he saw it, which means that they had put their heart and soul into following with precision accuracy God's words. So what made them change? Before they were called to build the tabernacle, they were just nothing but naughty. And then once God told them to build the tabernacle, they were nothing but good. So what changed? I think it was that they actually had a job to do. 
for the Lord. And that ignited their faith and ignited all their energy toward the Lord. And while they were serving him, they didn't have time to sin. They were having so much fun serving God that they didn't have time to sin. I've seen that in churches. People are so eager to offer tithe. They're so eager to help out with all the events. They're so eager to bring food to somebody's house when they're sick. But a lot of times in their personal life, when it comes to whether or not they're going to make a sinful decision or whether or not they're going to trust God, then they go south and they don't do the right thing. So it kind of seems like the more inward focused we are about our own problems, the more likely we are to sin and the more outward focused we are in doing things to be helpful and to be a servant of the Lord, the least likely we are to sin because we just don't have time. I found that in my personal life too. Now I'm not telling you to stay busy, busy, busy because obviously God wants us to stop and rest at times. So we need to know how to rest, know how to be faithful when we're not busy as well as when we are busy. But it just shows you that it's easier to be faithful when you're busy. But we also have to develop the spiritual endurance to be faithful when we're not busy. That's where we leave in Exodus chapter 40. This is the end of Exodus. Our next episode will start the book of Leviticus.